0: assessing our purpose, our priorities and our vision of course. Uh, We are asking key questions of ourselves. How can our church flourish? What does a healthy church look like? Uh, We have also enlisted the services of a consultancy team. Uh, We've been seeking the wisdom and insight of others. Imagine that it was possible for our eldership team to meet with The Apostle Paul himself. Imagine that we were able to get his advice concerning our ministry. Well, the good news is that in effect we can. Because in Acts chapter 20, we have a record of Paul's parting advice to the elders, a leadership team, at Ephesus. It's the only speech in Acts which is given to Christians. All the other speeches in Acts are evangelistic sermons to to the unconverted. And in Acts 20, he's passing on to these elders through Acts the benefit of his wisdom and his insight. And he's doing this so that their church can only survive but thrive. If you like, it's his ministry training course for these elders. And we, when we read chapter 20, get to listen in. In effect, we are flies on the wall. Now, for those in Christian leadership, both in our church and beyond, uh, this is a priceless opportunity to have the wisdom of Paul minister to our hearts and minds in our world's leaders. Uh, he has given us the priorities and principles of gospel shaped leadership. And this also ministers to members of the congregations. Uh, as you are reminded of what a healthy gospel-shaped leadership looks like, but you're more able to understand the figures and the challenges that those in leadership face, and you're better placed to support them and to encourage them. And also, at the same time, you're understanding that a healthy, gospel-shaped church is sharpened, and therefore it feeds healthy into our life together as a church. So, before we pour over Paul's early wisdom, and let's see how he came to convene this ministry training course, I'm having on the screen at the map of Paul's third missionary journey. So, um, last week we were in Acts chapter 19, and of course, Paul was in Ephesus, there it is, on the Turkish coast. Uh, he spent three years there, we saw, uh, and during that time there was great progress in the gospel. But also, we saw there was mounting opposition, culminating uh, in the right at Ephesus. And now, in Acts chapter 20, down to the rise, Paul leaves the city. And he heads northwest and he enters into what is modern day Europe, what is called Macedonia there. And he travels through Macedonia, encouraging and strengthening the Christians from his previous missionary journeys. Eventually, he ends up way down here in the Greek city of Corinth, where he stays for three months. And lo and behold, that is where he writes the letter to. Romans, which we've been studying for of this year. So he's sitting there in Corinth, uh, three months, waiting for the winter to pass, because once that has passed, the sailing season resumes. And Paul is keen to get back to Jerusalem uh, with the financial aid of the Jewish Christians there. And it seems he also wants to celebrate the Passover in uh, the Pentecost, uh, the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. However, uh, the direct route uh, from Corinth to this area here is he proves to be unwise. He learns from the Jewish fox to take his life. And it seems they're planning to attack him uh, during the voyage and probably finally disposed of his on board. And so he decides instead to trek back up overland through Macedonia and back into Asia. So that's what he does. Uh, and he's trekking along here along the coast, and he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because he's he's very busy wants to get to Jerusalem. He's it but when he gets to Miletus, he sends a message to the elders and guests saying, come down and meet me in Miletus, uh, because I want to give you some parting words. And so that's what he does. Uh, they trek down 50 kilometres to Miletus, and Paul holds effectively a ministry training conference, just for them. And in that chapter 20, we have an abbreviated really summary of it. Uh, Paul's talking to them as people who he knows and who know him. Of course, he spent three years in Ephesus. And now what he's doing is he's recalling to their minds his own ministry whilst he was there. He's explaining and he's analyzing for their benefits what he did during those three years in Ephesus. Now, he's not describing what was unique to him as an apostle, of course, it was his unique role to define what the Gospel was as a messenger of Christ. But what he's doing now is not in that role. What he's doing now is he's committing to them the generics of his gospel shame ministry. He's saying to them and it applies to them and to elders throughout the generations. What he's saying is, this is what I did. These were my priorities. Follow my example. And hence, he's giving us this pattern of gospel ministry that endures all time, including for us today. A brief has up the structure. Uh, you can summarise his advice to church leaders in two points. Church leaders must first live out the gospel, and secondly, church leaders must preach the gospel. So, uh, church leaders must live out the gospel, at verse 18. Uh, when they arrive, who is the Ephesus? church leadership. He says to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. That Paul's ministry was a lifestyle, and it wasn't just a Sunday performance. He said to them, You know my life. You know what it was like because I shared my life with you. You see, he showed that gospel ministry is a way of life. It's not just a performance.
1: And notice also, he says, You know how he lived." at the whole time
0: I was with you. He consistently lived out the gospel amongst them, day by day. And therefore, we think about what this means for us today. That those in Christian ministry, of course, are called to practice what they preach and, where possible, to share their lives with those to whom they are ministering. And in so doing, they pass on their legacy. Because the gospel is not only taught, but it is also caught. Verse 19, he continues, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Who does Paul think he is working for? Now, he's speaking to the others, but he doesn't say, I served you. He says, I served the Lord. For those in gospel ministry, their primary allegiance, of course, is to the Lord Jesus. It is Christ they serve, it is Christ they seek to please, and it is Christ to whom ultimately they will give an account. And notice also in verse 19 that Paul served the Lord with great humility and tears. We know, don't we? Gospel ministry is not easy. And for Paul, uh, nothing could be more truly said. For Paul, gospel ministry was hard labor. Uh, He spent his time being opposed. He was criticized. He was persecuted. He was often homeless, anxious, sleepless. Burned with many cares. Sometimes today uh, people convey the impression that, that ministry should be uh, slick and shiny, and everything should be seen to be running very smoothly, and everything is uh, well, everything is everyone in ministry got all this. But that is not a New Testament model of ministry. Uh, the apostle labored and he suffered. Therefore, if Christian leaders are not weary, or are clearly struggling, or are not on top of the situation, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not suited to that job. It is the nature of ministry. It is tough, it is hard, it is demanding. And hence, for those struggling in gospel ministry, the struggle shows that the reality of gospel ministry not there, he had ever seen. So be encouraged. Paul also says, although I was severely tested, Paul was deeply opposed, people were planning to bring him down. The Jews, of course, and it can still, and it does still happen today. A gospel ministry faces opposition, both from without and tragically also, from sometimes from within the church. But despite this testing, uh, Paul continues. He serves the Lord. But how does he serve Him? Secondly, a Christian believer must not only live the gospel, but also preach the gospel. Look verse twenty. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you. though I taught you publicly and from house to house. Uh, this is a key way that Paul served the Lord in preaching. And he takes every opportunity to teach. He says, I have not hesitated, in other words, at any time. He says, I would ask David to preach anything that would be helpful. He's ready to preach on any subject. He says, I taught talking publicly and from house to house. He's ready to teach in any place, whether it be from a pulpit or in a conversation with somebody. We can often show a comment about speaking to each other about the Bible, but the Apostle Paul would encourage us to embrace the opportunity, whether we're leaders or whether we're congregational members, we'll always be looking for the opportunity to talk to each other about the scriptures and how we can encourage each other in that. And if you notice the content of what Paul preached what he taught, verse 21. I have declared to, to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what was the response that Paul was looking for from his preaching? A repentance and faith. Uh, what does repentance faith mean? Repentance, of course, means this changing of the mind. It is this decision of the will uh, we come to Christ and we say, please forgive me my past, but we also at the same time turn from our past. We say I'm committing to the future being different. That is repentance, saying, I'm going to do it and you turn. The future will be different. So it's not merely intellectual assent. Repentance is a decision of the will to be different, for the future be different. Uh, sometimes when I pray to God or I'm confessing or I sin to Him, uh, sometimes as I look back over the week, I think, I've learned it again, I've made that same mistake. What is the point of repenting again, of confessing again? But of course, it does have a point if I'm truly intending to be different. If I'm really saying I'm going to make every effort. Hence, repentance is a decision of the heart. A decision where we're saying, please Lord, help me to live differently in the future. The issue is not how I've been successful, but did I mean it? So Paul, Paul's end of preaching is firstly to bring people to the point of repentance, but also faith in Jesus. We don't just turn from what we know to be wrong, we also turn to Jesus, and we say henceforth I will live under Your Lordship. And such is the nature of a good response to the Word of God. We repent, and we put our faith in Jesus afresh. And it's something we do at conversion, and it's something we then do every time we can hear the Word of God preached to our hearts. So. That is what the Paul is doing. He's teaching the word, and it requires repentance and faith. And now Paul focuses on two vitally important aspects of this ministry. Firstly, teaching the truth of the Bible, which is positive, and secondly, protecting against the false teaching, which is negative. So there is a positive and a negative aspect to Bible ministry. So teaching the truth. the message he teaches is described. Uh, in three different terms. And each of these terms he uses reveals the contours of what healthy Bible teaching looks like. Look at verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only go in every city. The Holy Spirit warns me that Christian and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul talks of testifying to the task of the gospel of God's grace. He reminds his hearers that the gospel is the undeserved and the generous kindness of God in salvation. It is essentially a message of God's kindness to us. In 1 Timothy, some sometime later, uh, we get a glimpse of what's going on in Ephesus. And it can be seen that the elders at Ephesus are actually wanting to be teachers of the law. uh, Chapter 1 verse 7. And hence Paul proceeds to correct them in 1 Timothy, that this false teaching reminds them Maybe even at this meeting in Miletus, Paul could always see the tendency of these church elders to teach law and not grace. And that moment may explain much twice in the 20, Paul stresses that the gospel is all about God's grace. For us today, it raises the question, is that the gospel which we preach? Uh, Do we really teach the gospel of God's grace? Or do we inadvertently slip into a message of law and rules? Do we intentionally slip into saying that it's all about the way we live? Of course, the gospel does shape the way we live, but the starting point is grace, not works. In Romans, we saw that Paul gave such primary emphasis to the gospel of grace that people were asking the question, Does that mean that we can live anywhere we please? Is Christ so suffused in our preaching that people would be prompted to ask the same questions? Are we teaching the gospel of grace? Is that central to what we proclaim? Is that what people would hear if they came in from outside and sat for the first time on Jesus? So that's the first thing, that first term called news. Uh, of the, rest. the second term we use, which describes the apostle preaching, is the kingdom of God. Look at verse 25. Now I know that none of you among, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He's saying, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That Paul's message is preaching was preaching the kingdom. Preaching the kingdom is, of course, unpacking that story we see throughout the Bible of God's salvation plan. Teaching the kingdom, the kingdom is promised in the Old Testament and it is fulfilled in Christ. And so, a healthy part to gospel preaching is showing how the theme of the kingdom of God unfolds in the Bible. If somebody asks you, how does the Bible fit together? What you be able to do that summary of how it all fits together? From the kingdom in the garden of Eden, to the kingdom lost, to the kingdom promised, to the kingdom brought back in Christ. Now here's some breaking news for you. Uh, next year, we are going to have, our main preaching series of going to be an overview of the Bible. We'll be looking at the theme of the kingdom of God, from beginning to end. You thought well, that was a non-serious to get to that one. And the third way in which uh, Paul describes healthy gospel preaching is he says the whole will of God. Look at verse twenty-seven. And therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The whole will of God. What does it mean? Uh, The whole counsel of God, the whole teaching of the Bible, uh, a balanced theological presentation. Uh, Not going light on any area of what the Bible teaches. Uh, Teaching God's judgment as well as his life. Teaching the tragedy of the reality of hell as well as the beauty of heaven. Portals, the whole will of God. So he was teaching uh, the gospel positively, uh, but he was also uh, teaching the gospel in a way which was protecting against false teaching. And in a very similar protective role of these Christian leaders, Paul pressed into service at two biblical metaphors for Christian leaders: one of watchman and one of the shepherd. And both of these metaphors for Christian leaders help bring out the, the role. Protecting the flock against false teachers. Uh, Firstly, in verse 26, uh, Paul says, "I am innocent of the blood of all men." Uh, To understand what Paul means by this, uh, we need to look back to Ezekiel chapter thirty-three. In Ezekiel thirty-three, God commissions the prophet Ezekiel to be a watchman for the people of Israel. Now as a watchman, he is to warn the people of impending danger. In the Old Testament times, uh, the cities had high protective walls around them, and the people would go out of the city to tend their flocks and to their crops in the surrounding fields during the day. Now the job of a watchman was to act as a lookout, and the watchman would position himself at the high point of the wall of the city. And if he saw a hostile army approaching the distance, he would sound the alarm. And when the alarm sounded, all the people would run back into the safety of the city. And the gates would be closed, and they would be safe from the danger that was coming. And this was the job that God had given the prophet Ezekiel. He was a watchman, a watchman for his people. And in Ezekiel 33, God says to him that if Ezekiel warns the people that he, God, is coming to destroy them in judgment, but they don't bother, they don't believe or heed the message, then God will not hold Ezekiel accountable for their blood. It will not be his fault because they will listen the same. But, if God tells Ezekiel that he is coming in judgment and Ezekiel doesn't want the people, they will still be punished for their sins. God will, but God will hold him accountable for their blood. And he will be saved, but he will be still guilty of their deaths. It's incredibly strong language. And the Apostle Paul now takes up himself the same theme here when he says that he has not hesitated to declare to them the whole will of God. Are we ready to time? Okay. And therefore he's listening to their blood. The implication is this. If gospel leaders fail to proclaim the whole will of God, then we will be innocent of the blood of the people. If we are going selective with what the Bible teaches and fail to tell people the whole counsel of God, particularly the themes of God's judgment in hell, although we ourselves will survive, it's as if we will be guilty of their lives and their blood being on our own. So, not only are Christian leaders described as watchmen from Ezekiel 33, but also as shepherds from Ezekiel 34, and that's what we had read to us in our Old Testament reading. To look at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made your own Be shepherds of the church of God, which, is brought, which He brought with His own blood. In the Old Testament, we see that the leaders of Israel failed, and they did a mighty job. Uh, They didn't teach you about the kingdom of God. Uh, These teachers cared for themselves, not people. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, God promises to shepherd his people himself. He says, he will save the sheep and then take care of them. And in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, God reveals this. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and they will tend And he will send them and be their shepherd. Of course, it was Jesus who later took to himself this messianic title of the Good Shepherd. And of course, the Good Shepherd saves his sheep by laying down his life for his sheep. And now Christ entrusts the shepherding ministry to Christian human leaders. And it is a sobering responsibility. Verse 28 again, says this, The shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. God has brought the church at great personal cost, with his own blood, the blood of Christ. And this means that the church is precious to God, because the price he paid. And that means that Christian leaders have a sole responsibility to care for the church of God. As shepherds appointed to watch over the flock. And the question is what damage can come to Christ's people? Well, verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul can see the future. You can see the false teachers will arise and will distort the truth and kill off the demons of life. And so Paul says in verse 31 this. So be on your ground. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So I'll be close. What happened to the church at Ephesus? Well, today, the city of Ephesus lies in ruins. It's surrounded by minarets and mullers. In modern day Turkey, uh, Christians account for less than 2% of the population. Uh, sadly, a vibrant gospel shaped ministry petered out over future generations. In the early 60s of the first century, uh, Paul writes to the believers in Exodus again and tells them of this personal prayer thing. You can read it in a letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he prays for their knowledge of God, and he prays for a knowledge of his love and his power, and that the hope will be strengthened. He prays for a growing knowledge of the riches they have in Christ. And yet, some twenty or thirty years later after that, the Lord Jesus are warning shots across the bow of the church in Ephesus, and through the apostle John. Christ addresses the church in Exodus, and this is what he had to say in Revelation 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who came to be apostles as I was, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. At this point, they were persevering. At this point, they were still holding to the truth of the Gospel. They were working hard in Gospel ministry, but at this point, their hearts had grown cold. A healthy response to Gospel preaching is more than just obedience and hard work. It is also a grateful, growing, heartfelt love for Christ. And without love for Christ, hard Christian work becomes duty. Orthodox belief becomes bigotry, and patient suffering becomes empty fortitude. May Christ not just give us a growing knowledge of the gospel, but also a deepening love for Him. That's right. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Paul that preserved for our benefit. And may we, may it speak into our hearts and lives, particularly our those involved in leadership. Uh, may we live out the principles of the gospel. Uh, also, may help all of us uh, as a congregation together to understand the nature of gospel ministry, uh, to support and encourage it in any way we can, and to engage in it. And please, we pray, may we not just be people who are have a great grasp of the truth, but may we also have a deepening love for Jesus. Amen.